0: We are wrapping up our Fruit of the Spirit teaching series today in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. And the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And there's actually some very interesting logic that I'm going to speak about uh, toward the end of the sermon about the connection with beginning with love and ending with self-control. But many of us know that self-control is much more than just holding back uh, a hot-headed temper Uh, in times of challenge or crisis, and responding in gentleness rather than angry outbursts. It's also about uh, speaking encouraging words rather than words that tear down or words that criticize. It's about uh, choosing to edify others rather than gossip about them. It's about comforting rather than discouraging And it's about honoring and glorifying God in all circumstances when our human nature says to follow our lusts and our passions and to fulfill every evil desire of our heart. It's interesting when I did a word study on self-control that there are no references to self-control in the Old Testament. I thought, that's pretty odd. Um, The only word that you find that kind of communicates something similar to that is the word control. And and mainly in the Old Testament, control speaks of territory and wealth and position and power. It's only used three times with respect to people. One time in Genesis, where it said that Joseph was no longer able to control his emotions in front of his brothers, and he broke down and wept in front of them because they had been separated as he was in Egypt and they were back at home. Uh, It's used another time in the book of Exodus where it Moses comes down off of the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments and Aaron has been in charge of the people and they've fashioned a golden calf and they're worshipping it and they're out of control. Then the third time, the third and last time that the word control is used in the Old Testament is in Proverbs 25 and it says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a person who has no control over their spirit. So King Solomon who wrote Proverbs says, A person who has no control over their emotions, their spirit, their actions, their words, their thoughts is like an unwalled city. It's very vulnerable. It's very uh, susceptible to attack. Medical experts tell us that the prefrontal cortex of the brain enables us to learn from our mistakes and make plans. When the PFC is healthy, we behave consistently in ways that enable us to reach our goals. When it works as intended, we're organized, goal-directed, thoughtful, empathetic, and able to express feelings appropriately. The PFC is often called the executive part of the brain, and is closely associated with judgment, impulse control, attention span, self-monitoring, problem-solving, and critical thinking. And some of you right now are thinking of other people that you know and wondering if, perhaps, that is working properly in them, like, maybe that's the reason that you know there's no impulse control, or they just always say what they're thinking. I was reading a story about that this week. A woman had suffered an accident, and that part of her brain was damaged, and so she had no impulse control and she and her friend went to the the theater and there was these two gals sitting in front of them and the one gal was saying to the other gal it was a pretty large woman, and she said you know i I don't understand why I'm so heavy. I I eat like a bird. And the gal in back said, "Uh, yeah, like a condor. And they got up and moved, and her friend looked at her just horrified, like, and she said, did that come out of my mouth? You know, and it it sounds funny, but I mean, there are people for whom that is a reality, that if you think it, you're going to say it. You know, there's no control. We we, we joke in our family about blocking gnomes. Blocking gnomes are those little gnomes that live in your, in your brain that say, no, not a good idea. Like, don't say that or don't act that way because it's not edifying, it's not helpful. And what I would want to suggest to you today, what I am suggesting, is that, you know, that part of us physiologically on a human level enables us to conform to societal norms, to cultural standards, but I would submit to you that it's the Holy Spirit for Christians that goes above and beyond that physiological phenomenon and allows us to be able to preview and evaluate and control our thoughts and actions, and that's the beauty of being, having God's Spirit living inside of us. What, what a beautiful and powerful thing that is. In the New Testament, there are seven verses that speak about self-control. And the word in the Greek, the original language, literally means to rule or to restrain or to control. The Greek word is a compound word. It's made up of a word that means strength or power, and it has a prefix that means in or within. So self-control in Scripture is literally strength within. Strength within. It's the ability to govern our own behavior. Plato in secular literature uh, described it as self-mastery, self-control is a person who has uh, control or reign or governance or mastery over their thoughts and actions. And so, there's three things today that I want to um, point out from Scripture that I believe uh, self-control is really about. All because, or all made, made possible by virtue of the Holy Spirit that indwells us as believers. And the first is this: that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to preview our actions ahead of time. So think of like a digital camera where you you snap a picture and then you kind of look at it and you go, oh, I love that or I don't like that at all. And you're able to edit it or take another picture or perhaps you're on your computer and you're getting ready to print something and you, you hit print and you realize that what is selected to print is way different than what you intended to print. And you're able to format that or change that The Holy Spirit allows us supernaturally to be able to preview in our heads our our thoughts and our possible actions and evaluate those before they go public. And what a gift of God that that is. Job chapter 32 verse 8 says, But there is a spirit within people, the breath of the Almighty within them, that makes them intelligent. So God's spirit indwelling us gives us intelligence and discernment and wisdom beyond uh, any human ability that we might have been born with. Uh, Proverbs 20, 27, the spirit of of a man is the lamp of the Lord searching all of the innermost parts of his being. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to even engage in reflection, in introspection, to be able to have thoughts and think about things and formulate things, that's the Holy Spirit within us. When Jesus was getting ready to leave this earth in the upper room as he spoke to the disciples in John 16, he said, when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. So one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to constantly remind us of what truth is. Not truth by our own subjective standards, or truth according to the culture or the place in which we live, but truth according to almighty, holy God, the most objective standard of truth that there is. (coughs) So as we consider things, we can say, is this something that God would honor, that glorifies him, that is uh, according to his will, or is this something that I'm engaging in that's really about me? or something that others have rationalized and justified as a course of action, but but not so good. Job 32, 18 says, For I am full of words, the Spirit within me constrains me. So again, God's Spirit allows us to have restraint, to have discretion, to have discernment, that not every thought that we think gets verbalized, that not every action that we consider uh, implementing gets implemented because of the, the filter of the Holy Spirit, the ability to preview our actions ahead of time. Secondly, I believe the Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom to evaluate the consequences of our choices, the wisdom to evaluate the consequences of our choices so that we can see ahead of time without having to live it out and experience the crash and burn of wrong decisions that, yeah, I have a number of options right now. And some of those options would glorify God, would honor my family, would be for the good of those around me. And some of them, if I'm honest, are all about me. And they're selfish. They're, they're self-centered. Um, they're probably going to be very hurtful and destructive for other people. And yeah, in our American culture, I'm entitled to do whatever I want. But I can't stop that nagging conviction of the Holy Spirit like, yeah, you can do that but this is what it's going to look like. Is that really what you want to do? Is that the legacy that you want to leave? Is that the impact that you want to have for your family or those around you, your neighbors? Uh, not, uh, uh, scripture says, all things are lawful, not all things are profitable. You know, All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. So when entitlements become enslavement, and we don't have the ability to do anything else but our impulses and our passions, then we're in trouble. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to evaluate. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Holy Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual... Can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things. So there it is again that to have God's Spirit inside of you means that we have that divine filter that allows us to not only preview thoughts and actions, but to evaluate them and to be able to determine and discern the outcomes and the consequences and to weigh those with wisdom. Powerful thing. The Holy Spirit helps us to find perspective as we evaluate how we should respond to people and situations. I was reading an example this week, a a lady who said, instead of saying, that person bothers me, we should train ourselves to start thinking, that person sanctifies me. I thought, wow, that's powerful. Like, there's a lot of people that bug us and rub us the wrong way, but do we ever ever stop to think, God has allowed this person in my life today for this moment. God is sovereign. We've just been talking about God's providence and God's sovereignty and how that relates to the fruit of the Spirit and how God causes all things to work together for good, how not everything that happens is good, but God uses it. And so I either believe... Uh, What a rotten day that I had to run into this person and have this unfavorable, unpleasant interaction with them. Or I say, God has allowed this, and God must be using this person to shape me, and to mold me, and to refine me, and to make me better. And so I can welcome that, or I can complain about it. It's all about perspective and about the evaluation that God allows us to do. Paul uses the word self-control a couple of times In the New Testament. And one passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Where he's talking about an athlete who um, subjects their body to, to discipline and intense physical training. And all in order that they might win a prize. This is what he says. He says, don't you realize that in a race everyone runs but only one person gets the prize? So run in such a way as to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. So that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul's saying, you know, I want to live what I preach. I don't want to be telling other people to do something that I'm not submitting myself to as well. And it's self-control through the Holy Spirit that allows us to discipline ourselves, to to subject our bodies and our minds and our spirits to the training that God wants to put us through. Paul also uses the word in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with regards to sexuality. He acknowledges that our sexual drive is a powerful force. And it can lead us, it can easily take us to places that we don't want to go and that we don't need to go. But notice that self control isn't just an end in itself, it's always for some greater purpose. An athlete masters their body and mind in order to win a race. We restrain our sexual desires in order to enjoy sexuality fully within the marriage relationship. Self-control is the ability to say no to ourselves instead of saying, I should be able to do whatever I want. I'm entitled to do whatever choices are available to me. No. Self-control is the ability to say no to ourselves and in order to say yes to something else. And that something else is usually or almost always something better that God has for us. And so it's denying... In the present moment, the things that are available to us and open to us as options and considering that not everything that's lawful or permissible for me is actually beneficial or good, and the wisdom to be able to decide that. Solomon said in Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and the one who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Proverbs 17.27 and 28 The one who restrains their words has knowledge. The one who has a cool spirit is a person of understanding. Even a fool, when they keep silent, is considered wise. When they close their lips, they are considered prudent. So there's times where wisdom says, just zip it. (laughs) You don't have to say everything you're thinking. You don't have to get attention by you know, dominating the conversation or letting everybody else know how much you think you know because sometimes there's wisdom in just restraining and holding back that opinion or those thoughts or that advice. A grandfather was talking to his grandson, and he said, Grandson, there are two wolves living in my heart, and they are at war with each other. Thought, That's got to be one terrified grandson. One, one is vicious and cruel. The other is wise and kind. Grandfather, said the alarmed grandsons, which one will win? The grandfather paused and then said, the one that I feed. And I thought, you know, there's a real truth for us here is that we all have appetites, fleshly appetites. And you do not kill an appetite by feeding it. You kill an appetite by starving it. I told you the story of my first full-time job in Santa Barbara. as a a young teenager, was Baskin-Robbins, you know, and people said, aren't you sick of ice cream after working here for three years? And I'm like, there's 31 flavors, you know. You move on to another one. and, And you don't kill appetites by feeding them. You kill appetites by denying them, by starving them. Neuroscientists have discovered that when you ask the brain to meditate, it gets better. Not just at meditating, but at a wide range of self-control skills. Over time, meditators' brains become finely tuned willpower machines. So the exercise of meditation actually trains our brains to be great at self-control and to be finely tuned willpower machines. And I thought... That's why we're exhorted in Scripture to meditate upon God's Word. I love the words of Psalm 1. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join with scoffers, but they delight in doing everything the Lord wants. Day and night they think about His law, His Word. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season without fail, their leaves never wither, and all that they do, they prosper. That's a picture of when we feed upon God's word. When we struggle with life and with choices and with challenges, we can look to the, the options that the world offers, or we can go to God's word and, and, and feed ourselves and glean what the Lord would have us do because God never calls us to do anything without supplying the strength and the resources. And that's all within God's Word and the power of meditating upon God's Word, God's truth. Another person said habits are the key to understanding how people are able to change. The authors of a fascinating book called Willpower write that researchers were surprised to find that people with strong self-control spend less time resisting desires than other people. So the better you get at self-control... The, the less wasted time you have resisting unwanted desires. It just becomes an automatic. And why is that? Because people with good self-control mainly use it to develop effective habits and routines at school or at work rather than using it for rescue in emergencies. So our self-control can be that that last-minute, last-ditch, save me in this crisis or this emergency, or it can be a daily routine that we practice, and over time and with consistency, it just becomes ingrained in us, and it it, it leads to a better way of life rather than always being in that pendulum swing of crisis. People with better self-control or self-regulation, self-discipline, willpower, are happier and healthier, according to experts. They're more altruistic, They have stronger relationships, more career success. They manage stress and conflict better. They live longer and they steer clear of bad habits. Self control allows us to keep our commitments. When we're in times of crisis, it's usually our commitments that are the first thing to go because it's just like it's crisis mode. You know, we're doing whatever works, whatever's expedient, whatever's convenient. And self control allows us to choose the best things rather than lesser things. I've used the object lesson before of taking a box or a cooler and filling the box with like large rocks and then asking, "Is this full?" and I'm like, "Yeah, it's crammed." And, "Well, could I put in any- well, not much more?" And then taking like golf balls and filling the cracks with the golf balls. And then taking sand and filling the cracks with the sand. And then taking water and filling even what's left. And the point is you can always add something to what looks full. But the other principle of that object lesson is you start with putting the big things in first. Because after that, there isn't much room for other things. The big things that we put in our life need to be the priorities. They need to be the values and the absolutes that God's word outlines and defines for us. Because, like Ron said, it's like planning for Hume Lake now rather than waiting till the last week. You know, if we plan now, we can make the necessary choices and be disciplined and have self-control to make it happen rather than being in crisis mode at the last minute. Well, the ability to preview our actions and thoughts, the ability to have the wisdom to evaluate the consequences of our choices. Lastly, I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit gives us the motivation to choose good actions versus bad actions. Every day, every moment, we have the ability and the option to choose good things or bad things. But the Holy Spirit is the one that not only helps us to preview and to evaluate that, but to be motivated to do the right thing. The Christian artist Lecrae said, Freedom in Christ allows you to control the desires that once controlled you. I was telling somebody about when I was at Ventura Missionary Church, one of the favorite sermons I preached there, I I love the title, The title was, You Were Never Free. And the idea was that before we come to Christ, we are not free. We are enslaved to the evil one to do what he wants. Our our mentality is, I can do whatever I want. But we are a pawn in the hand of Satan. And so coming to Christ and submitting to him as a bondservant is not about losing freedom. It's about giving freedom to the one who is our rightful owner and our creator. But as he says here, Freedom in Christ allows you to control the desires that once controlled you. Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, says, Ultimately, the only power to which a person should aspire is that which they exercise over themselves. Like, power and authority is not about being able to manipulate and control other people. It's about using that on ourselves." Still another person said, Since I am unable to control the events of life, I choose to govern myself. No, I can't control all that happens out in the world and and in the course of my day, but I can control myself and I can control how I react. Psalm one forty three, verse ten. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. God help me to find that path that leads to stability, to firm footing, that where I can have confidence in my decisions and where I can know that I'm honoring you and glorifying you and doing what's best for others. Philippians 2.13, one of my life verses, love this. For it is God who is working in you, giving you both the desire and the power to do what pleases him. It's a totally legitimate prayer. Sometimes you say, God, I want to do the right thing, but I don't have the strength. Or other times you say, God, i got plenty of energy, but I don't have any desire to do what you want me to do. Would you give me what I need, what I lack? And God promises to give strength and desire, motivation and power. John Wooden, one of the most revered coaches in the history of college basketball. Scott Watkins just perked up. (laughs) I know my audience credited much of his success to his dad. He recalled a boyhood occasion when he watched his father deal with a certain situation. His rural Indiana County would pay local farmers to take teams of mules or horses into the gravel pits scattered throughout the county and haul out loads of gravel. Some pits were deep, uh, deeper than others, and sometimes it was hard for a team to pull a wagon filled with gravel out through the wet sand and up the steep incline. One steamy summer day, a young farmer was trying to get his team of horses to pull a fully loaded wagon out of the pit. He was whipping and cursing those beautiful plow horses, which were frothing at the mouth, stomping and pulling back from him. The elder wooden watched for a while, then went over to the young man and said, let me me take them for you. Dad started talking to the horses, almost whispering to them stroking their noses with his soft touch. Then he walked between them, holding their bridles and bits while he continued talking very calmly and gently as they settled down. Gradually, he stepped out in front of them and gave a little whistle to start them moving forward while he guided the reins. Within moments, those two big plow horses pulled the wagon out of the gravel pit as easy as could be, as if they were happy to do it. John Wooden reflects, I've never forgotten what I saw him do and how he did it. Over the years, I've seen a lot of leaders act like angry young that angry young farmer who lost control. But so much more can be accomplished by dad's calm, confident, and steady approach. The wisdom to evaluate our response. So, As we close today, as we wrap this up, and as we wrap up this series, Where do we find the strength to say no to ourselves? Because that's really what it boils down to. Where do we find the strength to say no to ourselves? And the answer is actually in a verse leading up to our passage of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. Where Paul says this. He says, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desire of the sinful nature. The only way that the fruit of the Spirit are possible is if we daily, moment by moment, Submit to the Holy Spirit. Live by the Holy Spirit. When we live by the Holy Spirit, we don't carry out our own sinful desires, but we live for the King. We live for our Creator. I love what Peter says in his first letter. 1 Peter, actually 2 Peter, chapter 1. Consider Peter was a very impulsive disciple, lacking self-control. He's the one who cut off the ear of the high priest servant in the garden trying to defend Jesus. And now he is, after Pentecost, after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which, by by the way, I forgot to say this. I said it to Friday morning men's group, but I forgot to mention it here. It dawned on me that perhaps one of the reasons why self-control is not mentioned in the Old Testament is because it was pre-Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not indwell and empower people then. Peter was an impulsive, nowhere near self control before Pentecost. After the giving of the Holy Spirit, he preached at Pentecost and 2,000 people were saved. And now he's writing to us, waxing eloquent about self control. Listen to what he says Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith also supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We keep layering these things that God has for us, and one of those is self-control. Because as I'm going to say in a moment, self-control is what guides all of the other fruit of the Spirit. A man stopped at the grocery store on the way home from work to pick up a couple of items for his wife. He wandered around aimlessly for a while searching for the needed groceries, and in the process... He kept passing the same shopper in almost every aisle. It was another father trying to shop with a totally uncooperative three-year-old boy in the cart. The first time they passed, the three-year-old boy was asking over and over for a candy bar. Our observer couldn't hear the entire conversation. He just heard the dad say, Now, Billy, this won't take long. As they passed in the next aisle, the three-year-old's pleas had increased several octaves. Now dad was quietly saying, Billy, Just calm down. We'll be done in a minute. When they passed near the dairy case, the kid was screaming uncontrollably. Dad was still keeping his cool in a very low voice. He was saying, Billy, settle down. We're almost out of here. The dad and his son reached the checkout counter just ahead of our observer. He still gave no evidence of losing control. The boy was screaming and kicking. Dad was very calmly saying over and over, Billy... We'll be in the car in just a minute, and then everything will be okay. The bystander was impressed beyond words. After paying for his groceries, he hurried to catch up with this amazing example of patience and self-control, just in time to hear him say once again, Billy, we're done. It's going to be okay. He tapped the patient father on the shoulder and said, Sir, I couldn't help but watch how you handled little Billy. You You were amazing. The dad replied, You don't understand. I'm Billy. (laughs) Little twist. Well, as I said at the beginning, our Fruit of the Spirit series began with love and ends with self control. And you might ask, Is there a reason? Is there some logic to why? the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, ordered these divine attributes the way that he did or they did? And the answer is yes. And the answer is because love is balanced by self-control. The last three fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, are all different nuances of self-mastery, self-control. Faithfulness is keeping our promises and fulfilling our responsibilities. Gentleness is taming our strengths and harnessing our energies. Self-control is disciplining our instincts and mastering our passions. It's widely held that Jesus taught us to love ourselves and that the second commandment to love our neighbor as ourself is a command to do so. But really, when you stop and think about it, this is not so. Self-love in Scripture is a synonym for Sin. And it's not the path to freedom. Besides, to love our neighbor involves agape love, unconditional selfless love. And agape is sacrificing yourself to serve another. If agape is to sacrifice myself to serve another, it cannot be self-directed. How can I sacrifice myself to serve myself? The very concept is ridiculous. No, the way of Jesus is the opposite. Jesus said it's when we lose ourselves that we find ourselves. It's when we forget ourselves that we fulfill ourselves. It's when we die to our own self-centeredness that we begin to live. And it's when we serve that we're truly free. So love is balanced by self-control because love is self-giving. And self-giving and self-control are complementary, the one to the other. We can't give ourselves in love until we've learned to control ourselves. Our self has to be mastered before it begin. it can be offered in service to others. So I want to close the series in this teaching time with the wonderful choices that are available to us because of the Holy Spirit empowering us. This person another person wrote this I don't have the name right now, but it's, it's, it's a powerful way to sum up our series. They said I choose love. No occasion justifies hatred. No injustice warrants bitterness. I choose love. Today I will love God and what God loves. I choose joy. I will invite my God to be the God of circumstance. I will refuse the temptation to be cynical. I will refuse to see people as anything less than human beings created by God. I will refuse to see any problem as anything less than an opportunity to see God. I choose peace. I will live forgiven, and I will forgive so that I may live. I choose patience. I will overlook the inconveniences of the world. Instead of cursing the one who takes my place, I will invite them to do so. Rather than complaining that the wait is too long, I will thank God for a moment to pray. Instead of clenching my fist at a new assignment, I will face them with joy and courage. I choose kindness. I will be kind to the poor, for they are alone. Kind to the rich, for they are often anxious. And kind to the unkind, for that is how God has treated me. I will choose goodness. I will go without a dollar before I take a dishonest one. I will be overlooked before I will boast. I will confess before I accuse. I choose goodness. I choose faithfulness. Today, I will keep my promises. My debtors will not regret their trust in me. My friends will not question my word. My family will not question my love. I choose gentleness. Nothing is won by force. I choose to be gentle. If I raise my voice, may it be in praise to God. If I quench my fist, may it only be in prayer. If I make a demand, may it only be of myself. Finally, I choose self-control. I refuse to let what will rot rule what is eternal. I choose self-control. I will be drunk only by joy. I will be impassioned only by my faith. And I will be influenced only by my God. I will be taught only by Christ. I choose self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. To these, I commit my day.